Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. From my laboratory in the Castle East to the master bedroom where the vampires feast, this is the Lovecraft Geek, and I'm your host, Wilbur Waitley. Thanks for being with us after a bit of a hiatus in which uh, the stars were not right for my computer, but now they seem to be okay again. And so we're going to take a look at some uh, Lovecraft questions, which I will try to bluff my way through. Jeremy here again. Uh, what killed the horror atop Sentinel Hill? In his monologue, Armitage says he has a spell to make the thing fade away, but the demise of the creature is rather more sudden. The last words of the creature, like Wilbur's of the library, might be an attempt at a spell, perhaps the Necronomicon's page 751 right to open Tiag Savath, rather than a Psalm 22-esque, Why have you forsaken me? The superbly timed lightning blast and the HPLHS, H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, Dark Adventure Radio Theater, Adaptation prompted my question. Was it Rytus Interruptus, courtesy of Armitage and his counter-spell? Did Yogg himself strike the creature down for some reason? Did it succeed in calling down something which even its formidable form was too feeble to bear? All stirring speculations, I find. Um, let me see. I tend to still think that the uh, the spell that Armitage had come up with uh, is what did the trick. Everything seems to lead to that, even if the final departure of the critter was a bit uh, less anticlimactic than fading would suggest. Uh, because if it isn't, it opens up uh, all kinds of questions, such as you rightly ask, uh, that uh, tend to unfocus the denouement. It seems to me we have to uh, to assume that, especially in light of his pep talk to the decayed, semi-decayed, and undecayed weightless at the end of it, uh, is... Uh, the kind of a victory dance that he said, okay, we've, uh, we've stopped this thing for now. And, uh, I have to assume that's what Lovecraft intended. Uh, otherwise, uh, he's disobeying one of the big rules. As Chekhov said, if you, uh, drive a nail into the wall in one scene, you better hang something from it on another one. Uh, it, uh, it would be a red herring and, uh, with nothing clear, uh, to replace it, and uh, so I tend to think it is supposed to be the uh, the, the spell that did it, and that uh, therefore he is crucifying the the son of Yog, and that the Psalm 22, Mark 15 thing kicks in, that it is supposed to see the Dunwich Horror as the the son of Yog Sathoth crying out, uh, "Father," as in "God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" These other uh, possibilities are interesting, and uh, they would especially be interesting as hooks to hang a sequel on. So you might want to think about that. But I tend to think he, he probably does mean the uh, the spells what done it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, finally, oh, sorry, finally, a Lovecraftian film recommendation. Uh, Peter Cushing and the and venerable horror icon Christopher Lee, it's a tenet of my religion to always refer to him thus, usually making the sign of the fang, uh, co-starred in a wonderful flick called Horror Express, failing only to abandon the viewer in a hostile universe bereft of hope, something Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness does with crushing aplomb. It's not an adaptation, but the mood and the implications of the plot reverberate with cosmic malevolence. Uh, that uh, sounds pretty good. I uh, sort of remember seeing a bit of that. It was Telly Savalas in it also? Uh, but I've, I'm sure I've never seen the whole thing, or if I have, I'm so senile I can't remember, so I'll have to check that out. Uh, I uh, never used to like Hammer films that much, even though I saw a couple of them first run in a drive-in theater decades ago, but now I'm warming to them. Uh, in fact, one of my favorites that I always manage to watch on Halloween is... Brides of Dracula, uh, and I just saw uh, The Gorgon for the first time uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, good stuff, and uh, I'll have to uh, see this, I'm eager to see it now that you've whetted my appetite, I, I really liked In the Mouth of Madness also, it really does show things fraying apart uh, at the end in classical Lovecraft uh, style, uh, thanks for these recommendations. Short and sweet one from Laura Hill. She says, is the series Pirates of the Caribbean Lovecraftian, in your opinion? Well, I don't have much of a right to answer this, since the only one I saw was the first one, which I thought was entertaining, but a bit too long. I also didn't like the idea that these uh, buccaneers, matey, uh, weren't really decayed zombies. They just sort of became that way under certain circumstances. That struck me as a kind of a weird reversal of the trope, but uh, but it was pretty interesting. The uh, pronounced Cthulhuvianism, of course, uh, comes into play with the second one with Captain Davy Jones, right? The, uh, the Cthulhu and a pirate outfit thing. But I didn't see that, so I can't really say. But it's tough to see a creature like that in a movie and not think it's Lovecraftian, whatever else may be going on in it. So uh, maybe one day I'll get around to seeing the rest of them. Why don't you uh, write in again and tell us uh, if you think it's Lovecraftian and why. That would be most fascinating to me, especially since I've not seen it. I'd appreciate that, Laura. Hmm, uh, old Mark A. Seifert. Uh, says, one of my favorite HPL stories, and you remember, folks, I asked you to tell me your favorites and why, is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Recently, I took part in a Facebook discussion with some other fans over the identity of number 118, the mysterious shade inadvertently raised up by Dr. Willett, who w warns him about Kerwin and eventually deals with Orne and Hutchinson. I theorized that the Dark Age Saxon script on the note it left Willet hinted that number 118 was none other than Merlin from Arthurian legend. Another name that came up in our discussions was the Venerable Bede. 
Certainly it was a mystical personage that Kerwin and his cohorts greatly feared. I was curious what you and or other Lovecraftian scholars thought of the matter. Do you think Lovecraft was invoking a particular historical or fictional character? If so, then whom or what? Uh, I would think your guess is pretty good about it being Merlin. I, I doubt seriously that the ecclesiastical historian Bede would really be up to the task. But Merlin would make a lot of sense. Uh, but I'm thinking maybe Albertus Magnus would too, though I've uh, got to admit I don't exactly know where he falls in the historical timeline, but it's got to be way back there. Uh, so that uh, could well be. I, uh, I uh, wouldn't be surprised, but I think the Merlin guess is a real good one. It's got to be somebody who's certainly more powerful than these other guys. Uh, so, uh, and, and I do think it is intended to be somebody in particular. Uh, I think the uh, story does invite the kind of guesswork and speculation and surmise that you and the others on this discussion board um, in, engaged in. It's, it's just too tantalizing. It, of course, it's possible. He, i tell you what this is kind of like in Pulp Fiction uh, when uh, the uh, one character opens up the briefcase and you see this golden glow emanating on their faces from it and he says is that well i think it is and uh samuel L. jackson says yeah that's right and i can't give it to you what the heck is that supposed to be i mean that is telling you this is something you would recognize but can't tell you. Uh, I'd love to know if anybody has a theory about that, but it seems to me Lovecraft's doing the same sort of thing. He's he's really just goading you into thinking, well, this has got to be somebody. And uh, probably Merlin uh, would be a real goody, a real good, uh, good choice. I don't happen to know of other theories on it. I'd have to brush up on that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is such fun with, uh, with uh, Lovecraft and his mysteries. We're going to have a bit more of this kind of Lovecraftian enigma coming up in a minute, but I might as well take the uh, questions in, in order here. Luke Burton, Burton, like Tim Burton, from the Isle of Wight. My question is an open one. We can all agree that the influence of Lovecraft spreads far. There is hardly a horror or a science fiction project that can't trace some lineage back to the man himself. Hell, even Ben Ten boasts of a Cthuloid baddie. That, of course, leads many a whining fanboy like myself to gripe, If the influence is so great, then where's my Mountains of Madness movie? In reality, I should be grateful for what we already have. Restored texts, compiled letters, I could go on. But then other sober thoughts intrude. Oh... Uh, one wonders if the, all the best bits of stories have been plundered by movie makers. Would a pure Cthulhu movie really have any impact when we just saw one this summer with multi-dimension monsters coming out of the Pacific? And wasn't the 1982 The Thing the apex of Antarctic horror? Thoughts, please. Uh, well, uh, looks like uh, Guillermo del Toro is still hooked on the idea of making a definitive version of it. Well, <laughs> there hasn't been any version yet, but he's going to make a great version of At the Mountains of Madness. He says he's not given up on the idea and he's still determined to do it, though I don't believe there are any actual plans on paper yet, but I'm pretty encouraged by that. 
So I think we will get to see that. Um, but uh, I believe you're right. The Thing is just terrific. It's a more faithful version of the um, Campbell story, who goes there, a.k.a. The Thing from Another World, than the 50s version is, though I love that movie, too. And the prequel, oh, man, that was so great. My daughter Victoria and I are at some point going to spend all Saturday in a thing-a-thon with uh, all three movies back-to-back. Uh, And that is just terrific, and it does have this utterly alien life form that poses a threat to everything. And, of course, who goes there is no doubt inspired by it, the Mountains of Madness. Uh, They showed uh, the thing a few years ago, uh, as old as it was, right, Uh, uh, at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival when uh, Carpenter was kind of an in absentia guest of honor. Uh, And, uh, of course, that was the right thing to do. It is very Lovecraftian and a real classic, as is in the the Mouth of Madness. You know, I'm sure that uh, Pacific Rim was a a kind of uh, apology for At the Mountains of Madness not being made. Del Toro said at some point that he uh, wondered if if there was any real reason to make At the Mountains of Madness. Um, since this movie did uh, recycle some of the same themes. I I love that movie. Uh, And though since then he has said he is determined to go ahead and make the real thing. But yeah, I I love that. That's uh, just terrific, and it's certainly got Lovecraftian themes in it. Um, And and, uh, I don't trust too many people with making a straight adaptation of Lovecraft. When there are adaptations, I guess I'm grateful for how close they stick, if and when they do, to the original, but I don't expect it to be all that close because of the narrative limitations inherent to Lovecraft's stories. I mean, he freely admitted he didn't really care about the traditional character motivations or character development. Uh, The plot was secondary to the general mood of it, and and this was all a conscious aesthetic choice that, uh, of course, you and I think was a wise one with great results. But it's no surprise that it's going to be tough to render it into a movie without a lot of uh, additional stuff. And the question is, is that material going to fit well? And sometimes it does, like this Shadow Over Innsmouth uh, uh, movie that uh, I recently saw. Uh, Adaptation, not just a straight uh, filming of it, but uh, stuck pretty close and it was pretty effective. Sometimes the sheer fact of modernizing the story, like in uh, that, uh, what is it, The Resurrected, that uh, adaptation of Charles Dexter Ward, eh, the sheer modernization of it just kind of killed it for me. I just didn't seem to... I mean, so much of that story has to do with... uh, Providence and its past, as Don Burleson once said, Providence is really the main character in the story, and that just kind of drained away completely. What was left, I guess, was all right, but I didn't really feel like I was watching the uh, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. I felt a bit closer to that watching The Haunted Palace, though that took more liberties with the plot. But uh, naturally, all of this is very subjective. And uh, so I'm not uh, trying to pontificate uh, on it. But as you say, uh, Luke, there is an amazing amount of uh, material of all kinds for Lovecraft aficionados to glory in, both academic, uh, literary, 
adaptations into completely different media, music, comic books, gaming, and all that. It is a, a Lovecraftian world out there, and uh, uh, one does feel a little guilty uh, complaining that we don't have this or that, but we shouldn't, I suppose, because that just means we see the directions in which the whole thing has yet to blossom, and it will. So, sounds good to me. Okay, uh, Justin says... I was blown away when I heard you juxtapose Nietzsche's Madman from the Gay Science with Old Man Waitley from the Dunwich Horror on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. First, I'd like to hear you compare these characters, and second, have you observed any other homages to philosophy in uh, Howard's writing? Of course, he means Howard Lovecraft. Ja, ja, Cthulhu Vertagen, von Louis Magloon, fa Cthulhu Brillier, whatever, I can't say it, I tell you that, Mike Sisko, he, he's an actual an actual native Brillier and speaker, I wish we had him here. Um... Uh, yeah, I uh, did a uh, fuller version of that comparison in my Cthulhu prayer breakfast sermon in, I guess it was 95. I have a videotape of it. Uh, might be fun to try to digitize that and post it some way. That was probably the greatest of the prayer breakfasts. But uh, it struck me that, yeah, I, I think Lovecraft was inspired by this, that... Um, that here is Wizard Waitley. This uh, he is known, but known as an eccentric and an outcast. Here he uh, bursts into the local gathering place. It's not a church, but uh, it uh, almost takes the place of one in degenerate Dunwich. And there are the townspeople, and uh, to their utter astonishment, he he starts railing about this messianic event, the birth of this child uh, that is like the word of the ion to mix in a little Crowley. And uh, he just gets blank stares, and he says, well, one day you'll hear a child of Levinia's calling out its father's name on Federal Hill, and then as the movie adds, and then you'll know. Well, yeah, that's like uh, the, the uh, prophet of Nietzsche giving up and saying, well, I, I see I'm come too soon. It's like the light from a star. It takes so long to get here. So the Nova happened long ago, but we don't see it for a long time. I guess that's the way it is with the death of God. God. Uh, one day you'll understand. And uh, that's kind of what's happening. That's what's happening with Wilbur Waitley's grandfather. And it is supposed to be an epic-making uh, change. In fact, think of what the madman says in Nietzsche, that uh, how have we unchained the earth from its sun so that it, it goes drifting through the universe? That is very close to uh, what Wizard Waitley and Wilbur Waitley are trying to do, right? To uh, yank the earth out of the present dimension and put it into another one. I mean, it's so similar. Uh, and so I think it is a nod to Nietzsche, and we know from his letters and essays that he was a big fan of Nietzsche, as he should be. Uh, what else is there? Well, I, uh, in the introduction to uh, the, Through the Gates of the Silver Key, in my yet unreleased five-volume set of Lovecraft that Centipede Press is to put out eventually, I suggest that uh, Through the Gates of the Silver Key is a tip of the hat to Kafka, that when uh, Randolph Carter finds himself transformed into the insectoid Zakauba, this is like the character in the uh, in in uh, 
with a metamorphosis who becomes a cockroach and that there's kind of a hint uh, of that. I think uh, this isn't exactly philosophy, but I think the story to which that was a sequel, The Silver Key, is Lovecraft's version of Marcel Proust's uh, in search of lost time or remembrance of things past. But to go strictly with philosophy again, as S.T. Joshi's pointed out, this is certainly a, a kind of a poking fun at Descartes' ad hoc hypothesis about the pineal gland. He had, of course, Descartes famous for the mind-body dualism problem, and he said that there is mind and there is matter, and uh, mind does not have spatial dimensionality, and uh, therefore it can't move matter. Uh, it's like if it could, we'd uh, have telekinesis, like Gene Gray, right? But it obviously can't. Uh, you can't focus on something and get it to move. Well, gee, in that case, how does the mind move the body? Uh, that's a case of supposedly the, the mind moving matter. How can that happen? I mean, if, if it can't happen in principle, how can it be happening with us? Well, of course, most of us would say you're leaving out some pieces of the puzzle. Your paradigm uh, is, is inadequate. But what he said, and oh man, was this, uh, this outrageous. He said, well, somehow the pineal gland, uh, of which no function was then known, that must be the clearinghouse. That must be the place where mind is somehow enabled to motivate the matter, at least, of the body. Well, of course, it's ridiculous as great as Descartes was, let's face it. Uh, and, uh, and where is uh, the bit of the brain that gets stimulated to open up perception of another world? Uh, well, it's in the pineal gland and in, uh, in from beyond. So that's definitely a bit of uh, philosophy there. Um, you could even suggest that the, the ideal socialistic society that is outlined in rather too much detail, and the shadow out of time is a kind of a, I don't know, a counterpoint to uh, Plato's uh, Republic, though uh, Lovecraft couldn't stand Plato, so that may just, uh, that may be a stretch. Oh, let's see, yeah, so uh, I've... Uh, I guess that's about all I got to say on that one. Uh, you, by the way, you can read the text of my uh, uh, my second Cthulhu Prayer Breakfast homily in a booklet called The Sermon on the Mound that uh, Daryl Schweitzer has compiled and is available from uh, him for, I think, a huge amount of like a buck a piece or something. But uh, check that out. Hmm, the old hoplite here on Veterans Day. I guess this is a real good one to, uh, to, to read. He says, It is with great trepidation and absolute dread that I pen this missive to you. I can still hear the maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes as I now tell you the story regarding how, in only my thirteenth year of life, I had my first brush with a frightening tome called the Necronomic, uh, 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 I mean, uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth and other stories of horror. I think that the Shadow over Innsmouth is my favorite Lovecraft story, followed closely by the Dunwich Horror. 
shadow for me encompasses all those things that are best in lovecraft's writing it is atmospheric full of rich language and advances the mythos further unlike his shorter fiction ideas are fully developed in this story that in a shorter work would have been left undone such as the esoteric order of dagon it is nicely delineated without really slowing down the pace of the work also on first reading this is one of the few stories that really creeped me out the scene in the hotel was genuinely frightening yeah boy that's great stuff old hoplite i agree with you i, I love that one and it is just so uh, evocative and provocative that uh, many people uh, have been unable to resist the temptation to go back to Innsmouth. Right, there's, uh, there are these three volumes from Fidogan and Bremer, edited by Steve Jones, if I'm not mistaken. Weird Shadows over Innsmouth, Weirder Shadows, etc., etc. Uh, I did two Chaosium collections. Uh, Tales out of Innsmouth and the Innsmouth Cycle. Uh, there's all of Auguster Leth's uh, stories set there. All right, not every one of them is great, but it's really a lot of fun to go home again, you might say. What we uh, don't really have yet, but uh, I'm hoping possibly to touch on, is one where they uh, where the action is laid in uh, Johannes Lay. Well, we'll see though. Um, okay, uh, but I agree with you. By the way, this one does, of course, have more of a plot structure, and stuff actually happens in it. Uh, and uh, Will Murray has suggested that uh, Lovecraft was trying to go against his usual conventions and make it more action-oriented because he was trying to sell it to, um, boo, what was it, the Strange Tales? or strange stories, I think it's strange tales, because they wanted more of an action-oriented approach, though it didn't appear there. It appeared only in an abridged version in Weird Tales after his death and was later published in its full form. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Robert Biddle. I have two questions, really. One, in episode three, you talked briefly about how you thought Lovecraft would view the world up through World War II. Going a step further, what are your thoughts on the modern world? As prolific as he was with correspondence, it seems that email would appeal to him greatly, but I'm not sure he would like how pastiched his works have become. Well, I think you're right about that. He would have uh, looked at today's Lovecraftian scene with utter shock and amazement, and I think we already know how he would have reacted uh, when he uh, discounted the enthusiasm for his work in Weird Tales. He said that the audience was a bunch of yaps and nitwits. I suspect he would have said the same thing about the gaming and the, the rock music, which he would have abhorred and, and so forth. Now, with, with this kind of uh, deprecation, I always have to wonder if it's not really self-deprecation if it's not a way of uh, shrugging off the praise that popular culture gives him, already did in his time and would be today, as if to say, really, well, I'm not worthy of that, uh, but you say it in terms of they're not worthy of me, but I always secretly suspect it's a strange expression of modesty. It's hard to imagine he wouldn't have been gratified at this. 
However, you don't know. I mean, he didn't want anybody to make radio or movie adaptations of his work. He was afraid of what would happen. And surely some of the uh, modern products of devotion to Lovecraft, he, he simply would not have. Like, can you imagine the old gent remaining conscious through a showing of Reanimator, for instance? Well, um... Would he have used email? I kind of doubt it. Given his antiquarian bent, I think he would probably have uh, been one of these sort of Luddites wanting to go the old way. But you never know. I had a good friend like that who was a novelist and wanted nothing to do with computers. He said that uh, seeing it as if it were printed already on the screen in front of him would make it seem already set in stone. He wanted it to be a living uh, entity that he could still change. And I said, it is just the opposite. You'll find that the ease of alteration with a computer makes it more of a living entity than than the words on the paper, and he did try it and was converted eventually, maybe, I mean, instantly, I should say, maybe Lovecraft uh, would have been too. Now, in terms of the world and the culture, well, I've already said uh, ad nauseum that Lovecraft saw what was coming in terms of non-judgmental, inclusive, multiculturalism, um, irrationalism, both in terms of anti-scientific religion and uh, just fanciful whim religion, believe in whatever you want to, uh, the loss of uh, the exaltation of reason in Western culture, he saw all of this coming and bemoaned it in advance. I think he would have been a curmudgeon who would have hated living in these times. I mean, he, he felt out of place and out of time in his own lifetime, right? I think he'd be worse than Captain America waking up uh, to, to our time. Uh, he would just find it uh, utterly horrific, I think. And uh, that'd be unfortunate, but it would be very difficult. It would have been very difficult for him to have adjusted, I think. Uh, two, I've noticed that Lovecraft's amateur works are largely ignored. In Kenneth Height's Tour de Lovecraft, neither the beast in the cave nor the alchemist is even mentioned. Uh, while these are not his greatest works, they are, in my opinion, fun and quick reads. Any thought uh, on the disregard of his earliest work? Well, uh, fellow Robert, uh, I think you almost answered it right there. Some people uh, just figure that the author ought to be judged on his major work, and uh, these things that are juvenilia, why do we like them? Well, because we like the great work by Lovecraft so much that uh, we're going to get a kick out of anything he wrote, even a shopping list, right? Uh, uh, and uh, so that we, even we don't think they're that great. Like you said, they're a fun, quick read, but they're mainly interesting because of who wrote them, at least I think so. And uh, why is that? Well, because of the Dunwich Horror and at the Mountains of Madness and so forth. Uh, so I can see why he wouldn't uh, do that. Uh, it might indicate that uh, he thought these things were equally great. Now, of course, you could make it clear you don't, but uh, I guess he figured he just wanted to stick to the mountaintops. I can understand that. Though in my forthcoming five-volume edition, I got every scrap of uh, fiction and a lot of his poetry in there, and I think it's all worthy of attention. Hmm, uh, Roger Doss. 
says, uh, there's always a lot of talk about the Cthulhu mythos, but I was wondering about your thoughts on the dream cycle stories. What are your likes and dislikes about it? I've heard that Lovecraft didn't try to publish the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Is, is this true? Chad and Chris at HP Podcraft were pretty hard on it. What do you think about the tale? And has anyone added to the tale of Randolph Carter that uh, anything that you enjoy? Um, these are not my favorites, but I do appreciate them. They're, they're not what I come to, uh, to Lovecraft looking for. But once you uh, get a taste of Lord Dunsany and realize what he's doing there, and th then you recognize the same thing going on in Lovecraft and in Gary Myers and various others, you learn to develop a taste for it. But it is a different taste than uh, you've already developed for either the mythos epics or the traditional supernatural spectral tales of Lovecraft. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of comparable to what I was saying a moment ago about the juvenilia, uh, the beast in the cave and stuff like that, uh, that uh, you're really interested in them less in their own right than because of, the, because of who wrote them. And like, to put it this way, if you start out reading The Color Out of Space, The Dunwich Horror, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, you say, oh, here's some more Lovecraft. Let me read The Other Gods or uh, The Quest of Iranon or whatever. You're going to say, ah, gee, that, that's not what I was hoping for. You're going to be disappointed. But it's, uh, it's not the fault of the stories. He's trying and succeeding and doing a very different thing. right? So I think they're, they're good. I'm glad he wrote them. Uh, they're not my favorites, but they're certainly very well done. They have a kind of wistful, philosophical, pensive beauty and uh, uh, good stuff. No question about that. Um, the, uh, the Dream Quest, though, is a good bit different in its mood and style. It is, of course, dependent on the, uh, the earlier Dunsanian or dream world works, not of all of which take place in the dream world, but what the heck. Um, to me, this is just as much influenced, if not more, by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who Lovecraft praised in the uh, letter columns of the Argosy, when Burroughs' work was coming out there, his interplanetary adventures and so on. Later on, Lovecraft uh, had uh, decided he didn't like that approach much, but he sure did early on. And as William Fulweiler has shown very clearly, the Nameless City is practically an adjunct to the Pellucidar series by Burroughs. And this, I think, is, is very clearly Burroughs-inspired. Randolph Carter in this story is John Carter from Burroughs. Uh, Pickman is a completely different character than he is in Pickman's model. And he's less like Pickman the painter than he is like Tars Tarkas. The ghouls are the Tharks and so on. I think that uh, the dreamland in uh, the quest of unknown Kadath uh, is pretty much Barzoom, which is, I contend, a dream world also. Uh, when uh, Captain Carter is trapped in that cave and this gas knocks him out, it seems clear to me that what happens uh, in the rest of the adventure is a long dream. 
uh, he he has transformed the real life Apaches who trapped him in there into the red humanoid Martians and the green uh, Martian barbarians, and uh, and the uh, the capital of Barzoom is helium. Uh, the, not necessarily the same gas that put him to sleep and put him into the dream world, but a gas nonetheless. I assume Lovecraft saw that, but even if he didn't, uh, it just shows the uh, how parallel the two things are. I mean, in in the Silver Key or the statement of Randolph Carter, Carter is not the swashbuckling adventurer that he is in the Dream Quest. Okay. And again, not my favorite, but a real good piece of work. I mean, here I admit it is simply subjective taste. It's it's an excellently written work. Hmm, let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, sequels. I know some folks are going to tune right out right now, but uh, I have to say I think the, uh, the Randolph Carter sequels by Brian Lumley are amazingly imaginative and fresh. Uh, the whole idea of having Cthulhu with his dream invasion attack the dream world, oh man, that is great. Oh, but that's heresy. You can't combine the two genres. Who says you can't? Come on. If you don't like it, you don't like it, but uh, I, I uh, really got a kick out of it. Uh, it's not Lovecraft, yeah, that big news, right? If if everybody's got to be Lovecraft, you're going to be reading nothing but Lovecraft, which I can see somebody might want to do, but uh, as much as I love the old gent, I'm open to a lot of different uh, things. I think Lumley's stories uh, in the Dreamland are really clever and fascinating, though they're they're just as much inspired by the Oz books, I guess you know. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're, they're loads of fun and uh, real good stuff, too, I think. At least I like them. Hmm, Dave Finley says, My personal favorite tale is The Shadow Out of Time. The underlying sense of Homo sapiens' brief role in the history of planet Earth was totally chilling. Do you think that HPL mapped out a timeline for these events of other unearthly visitors and conflicts between races as a way of tying together various ancient horrors that come up in other tales, for instance, the Mountains of Madness, or was this just written for the sake of the story itself? I hate to say this, but both. It is obvious that he's tipping his uh, tri-corner hat to, uh, to his other stories, but he's, the history is not consistent I did a uh, crypt article eons ago, strange eons ago, I guess, uh, called Lovecraft's Cosmic History, where I try to show how it doesn't synchronize. A lot of it does, but there are major problems with it. Not that it makes any difference, right? Because uh, it is done for the sake of the story itself. So he didn't hesitate to uh, change conceptions, the order of invasions, the relationship of the invaders to one another. Uh, and that's fine. That's uh, what he should have done. Uh, he's not building the mythos or something. Uh, he's, uh, he's writing individual stories and drawing on common lore, but in the same way that all fiction is, and drama has drawn on mythological lore, inconsistently and to the greatest effect for the particular work you're writing. 
Same sort of thing with the Necronomicon. There's no one consistent view of what kind of a book it is. Uh, in uh, in the festival uh, itself, uh, you've got uh, the Necronomicon functioning as a Bible for these uh, maggot men or whatever the heck they are. Uh, in uh, in Kingsport, even though the only passage you read from the Necronomicon regards such beings as uh, a danger to be prevented, so you know what the heck? Uh, well, he just uses it for different purposes when it comes in handy in the story. And another one's what is it? A Bible of the mythos religion, or is it, is it a uh, demonology to warn you against it? Is it primarily about the old ones, or is is it a book of curiosities? There's no one conception, nor need there be. I mean, people, interestingly like uh, Lynn Carter uh, and Brian Lumley, become systematic theologians of the mythos. And again, whatever way you want to have fun with it is fine with me. I love that stuff, but I, I don't pretend, and neither do those gents, that they're reading the mind of Lovecraft. It's just fun to tinker with. Uh, so I think it's both. Now, in individual stories, of course, he did have a timeline, uh, and uh, then he would tell the events out of order, as any good uh, fiction writer would, you know, with flashbacks and flash-forwards and things like that. But he would get the story straight first. He would take notes on it. But I don't think he did that. I don't think he sketched out something like Howard's Hyborian Age to make all the stories consistent with one another. I mean, there's a surprising amount of consistency, but it's not completely consistent. Hmm. Uh, Frank Looney says, Are there any unanswered questions in Lovecraft's stories that you'd love to see answered? Okay, let me pause there. Here's a few. Who killed Harley Warren in the, uh, uh, the, the statement of Randolph Carter? Now, of course, I have inside information on that because I once asked HPL about this in a dream. I had this astonishingly vivid dream uh, where I was in the room with a few other Lovecraft nuts and there was HPL sitting in an easy chair in the corner and uh, talking away convivially, convivially. And I remember thinking, well, his voice is sort of high-pitched, just like his uh, the memoirs of him say. Uh, I said, this cannot be this guy has been dead for decades but I gotta believe my own eyes there he is that's him and and I said uh, Mr. Lovecraft maybe you could settle something for me who is it that that knows who Warren is and kills him when he goes delving into that tomb uh, and uh, I mean it's not just a growl or something that Carter hears he hears you fool Warren is dead uh, who is that and uh Lovecraft explained to me, well, that was uh, an old associate and rival of his named Kung. I, I guess I got that from Hans Kung, the theologian. Uh, and uh, if he had uh, some score to settle with Warren, and he's the one that sent him that manuscript in no known language. Uh, and he knew that uh, Warren would be able to piece together enough of it to go and uh, go into that, delve into that tomb. Of course, it was all a hoax, and he didn't know that Kung would be waiting for him to murder him, and he did. Uh, and I said, oh, okay, that makes sense of it. But, of course, this is just a theory out of my own fevered brain, right? Putting it into Lovecraft's mouth, much as people do with the Bible. 
Right? They come up with their own view and they attribute it to the Bible. Well, I was doing that on a subconscious level. But I'd like to know. If they, I don't think he really had anything consciously in mind because the whole thing is pretty much a transcript of a dream, right? Originally, it was Loveman who was killed. You fool, Loveman is dead. Uh, and he just wrote it down as soon as he woke up. So, you know, if there's, a, if there's a, an answer to that one, it would have been locked away in Lovecraft's own subconscious. I guess it's appropriate that it was in a dream that I asked him about it. Anyhow, uh, how about Lang? Where is the fabled plateau of Lang? Well, I'm guessing this is just an intentional change that usually we're told it's in Lang, which is just to say Tibet, just another name for Tibet. Um, but... Uh, he decided uh, that in the and at the mountains of Mandis, where he was reinterpreting things, oh, those old ones—they were really space invaders. He decided to say, well, the so-called plateau of Lang was really the haunt of the old ones in Antarctica. So he's kind of retroactively casting doubt on the uh, the Tibetan version of it. But it would be interesting to know what he thought about that. Um. Ah, uh, let's see. What was the thing that uh, Castro's buddies were worshipping in the bio in uh, the uh, Call of Cthulhu? It, it ain't Cthulhu. Uh, is it, I think uh, Will Murray came up with about the best suggestion I've ever heard, that it was a proto-Shagath based on references to, to those in uh, Fungi from Yagath and uh, other stories. Uh, but really, you can't go much farther than saying he's using the same image. Maybe you can go a step farther, because that portion of that story is based on an earlier commonplace book entry, uh, where you've got the uh, orgy of noxious and detestable degeneracy in the bayou, and there's some kind of creature in the swamp. I guess he just kind of liked it and tossed it in there, though is it supposed to have some connection with Cthulhu? Is it an avatar of Cthulhu? I mean, it's... Uh, that's where uh, Inspector Legrasse finds the uh, the Cthulhu statue, so I guess there's some connection. It'll just be interesting to know what exactly Lovecraft thought it was. In uh, the Whisper in Darkness, is it possible that Love? I'm sorry, the Lovecraft's uh, narrator, Albert Wilmarth, was actually talking to Akeley during that interview in the farmhouse. Uh, okay, Akeley's brain had already been relegated to that uh, that can right? but uh, what does it mean when the voice of whoever he's talking to is said to be almost like a buzzing imitation of human speech well it could be uh, John Fogarty uh, but uh, uh, it's uh, we're sort of I think the idea is that it's one of the the, the crustaceans from Yagoth who are said to speak that way elsewhere in the story but you can't rule out the possibility that it's the metallically rendered voice of Akeley in a can. Uh, that is the way Richard Lupoff took it uh, and in his sequel to that story. Uh, so uh, I'd like to know for sure uh, who that was. Um, 
What happened to Edwin M. Lillibridge in the implied backstory to the Haunter of the Dark? This guy was a reporter. He delved into the Church of Starry Wisdom, and he obviously had opened up the shining trapezohedron and unwittingly called forth this thing that destroyed him. So I guess we know enough, but I uh, can't help thinking thereby hangs a tale. And of course, I wrote such a story, right? The prying investigations of Edwin M. Lillibridge. But any time you got a lingering question like that, it's just an invitation to go in and write it up yourself. Are there any favorite examples, uh, Frank asks, of other writers answering those questions, perhaps? Well, uh, Lupoff's The Facts of the Case of Elizabeth Akeley, I think it's called. Uh, that's uh, it's a favorite of mine. Um, I guess I've already answered this. I like Will Murray's Proto-Shaga Theory on the Call of Cthulhu. Um, oh, boy. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see here, uh, The Black Brat of Dunwich by Stan Sargent uh, completely turns the Dunwich horror on its head by way of explaining things that you didn't even realize needed explanation. Very fascinating story, so I'd say that's one of my favorites. I love Stan's work. Uh, there must be more, but uh, I'll... Uh... I guess I'll leave it at that, but there's a second part of Frank's question. By the way, since you asked, my favorite HPL story is The Color Out of Space, and the first one I ever read, and my favorite non-Lovecraft mythos story is either the Black... St that is, mythos, but not by Lovecraft, sorry, uh, is either The Black Stone by Howard or The Thing That Walked on the Wind by Derleth. They're both incredible, and I just can't choose between them. Ah, that's mighty interesting. I know uh, a great Clark Ashton Smith scholar, Steve Behrens. Oh, this guy's like Reed Richards in the Fantastic Four. He's a brilliant physicist, too. Anyway, he loves uh, The Thing That Walked on the Wind and Ithaqua. I like them, but uh, they're, they're not among my absolute favorites, but they're, they're fun. I, I am a Derleth fan, and uh, I just, uh, this is why I ask. I'm just so fascinated to hear what other Lovecraftians think of you know of, of the Lovecraft stories they like so much and why and of these mythos stories by other people I'm glad to hear somebody likes uh, the thing that walked on the wind so much and I sure love the black stone oh man great stuff oh thanks Frank Nico N-E-K-O Oh, maybe he's an ancient Egyptian pharaoh, and it should be Neko. But anyway, uh, recently the number one podcast on iTunes was Welcome to Night Vale, which is a farcical running skit simulating community radio from a town somewhere in the deserts of the Southwest. The hook is the town is in a world straight from American conspiracy theorists and Lovecraft's stories. I was wondering if you'd listen to Night Vale. No, I have not. That sounds like a lot of fun. By the way, it's the Vale is spelled V-A-L-E, like Sunny Vale, not V-E-I-L, like the Americomics heroine Night Vale. Uh, who's sort of like the blue Scarlet Witch. Uh, anyway, uh, also it seems to me Lovecraft both plays with and plays into recent political trends where reality is stranger than, if possible, Lovecraft's fiction. What does this mean? 
Is there really some fundamental speculative strange attractor here that Lovecraft found years ago? That the internet and technology racing ahead of us is finally making plain to everyone? I'm starting to think that Lovecraft should be required reading for social psychology students. I'm not even sure if it's a question since it's so broad, but what does this mean? I think that uh, the answer may be found in an essay by Carl Jung, which is, this just pops into my head right now, so I've not looked it up. It's like uh, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. I believe that's pretty much it. And Jung didn't believe there were flying saucers, but he did believe that people were seeing them, and they were seeing them arise from their own collective unconscious, and that this was uh, a kind of substitute myth to replace pre-scientific myths of religion. Well, if you know anything about the flying saucer cults, the Aetherius Society, etc., etc., you know that what they have done is to make a religion out of science fiction, basically. Uh, they even include the Bible in it and make Jesus the artificially inseminated offspring of aliens. Uh, when he ascended, he was beamed up. Uh, when he healed people, he was using advanced medical technology like Dr. McCoy does in Star Trek IV. We're dealing with medievalism here, Jim. And uh, so I think he's uh, he's very likely correct about that. And I'd love to hear what Don Burleson has to say about this, by the way, being a big fan of Jung and uh, someone who takes some flying saucer sightings seriously, uh, for which I am not criticizing him, by the way. Please don't think so. There are some stubborn, fascinating cases out there. I'd love to know what Don thinks about that. Uh, are flying saucers a modern myth uh, in the, the depth psychological sense? Well, I would say that uh, that's kind of what's happened with Lovecraft, and it's no accident because, as the great Dirk W. Mosig pointed out, Lovecraft was clearly narratizing his view of cosmic indifferentism, what uh, Sprague de Camp called futilitarianism. <laughs> that is so great. I love that phrase. So perfect. Uh, which, as someone said a question or so ago, as with a shadow out of time, the utter insignificance of humanity and the scheme of things and so on, uh, that uh, this becomes more and more evident uh, in, with the advances of science, just like Lovecraft said in the beginning of... Uh, the Call of Cthulhu, right? He was a very perceptive guy. He could already see what was happening uh, with a popular revolt against scientific knowledge in the case of uh, evolution and Christianity, right? If you want to go into that more, uh, there's a book I co-authored with Edwin Suominen, uh called Evolving Out of Eden, Christian Responses to Evolution that uh, I dare say goes into the science and the biblical material from perspectives and in detail that no other work does. But uh, Lovecraft, I think, was right about this, and he saw trends developing that uh, have really uh, hatched out of the egg since his time. Uh, so it is no accident. Uh, it, he was a, a, an acute observer of the culture, and uh, now it's uh, the nightmares inside his head have been externalized. Now, not all of us would think 
the things he thought nightmares are bad. I mean, there's a wide, wide range of things that he was against that have come to pass that we don't necessarily disagree with, but I think he did uh, understand what was happening and, uh, and, and depicted it in uh, the form of parables. And, uh, well, believe it or not, that's it for the slime barrel, as I call it. The, uh, the Well, I know you might think, well, wait a second, that can't be Wilbur, because uh, I uh, sent in a question you didn't read. Yes, thereby hangs a tale. I've had computer trouble. Uh, I've had to, uh, well, a very generous uh, friend has uh donated a new computer to, to do these things on, but I need to, but the monitor on the one I had been using was shattered and I need to get a new one to be able to retrieve the material I had in my file. So as soon as I do that, I'll be uh, well armed for another Lovecraft geek and I hope that won't be too long, but you keep sending in those questions. I'm mighty pleased to see them uh, come in so steadily and uh, one way or the other, we'll have another Lovecraft geek here pretty darn soon. Thanks for being uh, with us uh, on this one. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson.